I invite you to take a Bible uh, turn, if you will, to the Gospel of John, chapter 13. Over the past couple of months, uh, when I've taught here, I began a series on encouragement, which I doubt if anyone remembers. <laughs> but this is the third sermon in that series on encouragement. And each sermon comes from a different passage, and today I'd like for us to look at John parts of John chapter 13. Now, if you've been a teacher, a, a school teacher, or a teacher in a church of children especially, you know that teaching children, it, when you teach children, it's very, very important, very helpful to use object lessons and to have visual aids. I was at a youth conference one time years ago, and a pastor named Scotty Smith, who is very, very bright, very well-educated, uh, he basically taught a lesson to a couple of hundred uh, youth, and he, it was like he was preparing a meal in front of them at a table. He had these various ingredients, and he called it the ingredients for a Christian life. And I don't remember the content of what he talked about, but I remember his, his visual aid, his illustration. Well, here in John 13, we are going to see one of the most profound visual aids, profound extended illustrations that we have in all of the Bible. And it was used by Jesus Christ to teach a lesson on serving other people. Jesus used object lessons. He, he healed a blind man, and then he claimed to be the bread of life, and he fed a multitude. Uh, he healed a blind man when he had said that he was the light of the world. And perhaps he saved the best for life. Uh, for last here at the end, right before he's crucified. Uh, John's gospel follows an unusual pace. For 12 chapters in the gospel of John, the first 12 chapters, they cover three years, almost the full public ministry of Jesus. And then the next six chapters cover one night. 12 chapters covering three years, and now beginning in chapter 13, for the next six chapters, it covers one night of things that Jesus said and did. Let me uh, tell you the background before I read to you the passage, because it, this was the uh, last week of Jesus' life and, and ministry on earth before the crucifixion. And it was a very event-filled but difficult week. He had entered the city of Jerusalem on what we call Sunday, the first day of the week. On Monday, he had gone into the temple and he had, he had run out the money changers and those who were, had turned the house of prayer into a, a robber's den. Tuesday, he had had head-to-head -head conflict with the religious leaders and they sought to trip him up and bring, try to gain some kind of evidence to arrest him. All those events are recorded in Matthew 21 through 25. Wednesday of that week was probably a day of rest, and now it's Thursday. It's Thursday night when Jesus says what we're going to read. It's the last Thursday night he would have with his disciples. And here's what he says, and it's said about him. Beginning in verse 1, it says, It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being prepared, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. 
Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answered, A person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now look, if you will, with me further in the chapter at verses 31 and following. Now when he was gone, that's talking about Judas, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Okay, this begins Jesus' farewell message to his disciples. And it will climax when he prays for them in John chapter 17, what we call the high priestly prayer. And this is a message not to the multitudes, but to his closest followers, to the circle of disciples who follow him literally to the cross. And what stands out here is this object lesson, this action that Jesus performs by washing the disciples' feet. And let me tell you my understanding of what it means and how it applies to us. The first few verses tell us that Jesus knew the timing. He knew what was getting ready to happen regarding his life. The disciples were still grasping what he was talking about. They still weren't quite there. So he was on a heavenly timetable. And it tells us that when it says in verse 1, it was just before the Passover feast, Jesus knew that the time had come to leave this world and go to the Father. Okay, so Jesus knew that. And this had been developed uh, from chapter 2, verse 4. Early on, he said, my hour has not yet come, and has not yet come. In chapter 7 of John, he had said, it said about him, his hour had not yet come. In chapter 8, it said, his hour has not yet come. And then in chapter 12, it says the hours come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And now here in chapter 13, it said Jesus knew that his hour had come. And then four chapters later in chapter 17, it says, Father, the hour is come. So Jesus was on a timetable. He, some, he knew, he was aware of where things were going and exactly what was going to happen and when. <clears throat> The hour that's referred to was the time when he would be glorified through his death and his resurrection and his ascension. 
So from a human point of view, the hour meant suffering and torture and pain. But from the divine point of view, the hour meant glory, when God would be glorified, when he would soon leave this world, Jesus would leave this world and he would return to the Father who sent him. Jesus is also aware on this timetable of his love for his own people and the work of the devil and Judas Iscariot to carry out his work. He's aware of the divine origin and where all this is leading. And so knowing all of this prompts him to do something, which is this act of washing the disciples' feet. Verse 4 tells us, as we read earlier, Jesus got up from the table. He took off his outer robe. He wrapped a towel around his waist, something like an apron. And he poured water into a bowl or a basin, and he began going from disciple to disciple, washing their feet. Now, you know, let me ask you this. Anybody come from a church background where, where foot washing is uh, uh, an ordinance in your church? Does anybody? Okay. That's surprising. Probably if we were more in the Midwest, that, that would be true. We know that foot washing, you know this, it was a common custom in those days just as a matter of courtesy. You wore sandals, sandal-like footwear, dry, dusty roads. A good host would provide a servant who would wash the feet of their guest. <coughs> if there was not a uh, servant available, certainly the, the host of the house would not wash their feet, but they might make a bowl of water and a towel available. So it's a job for a servant, not for a master. So what's unusual about this action is not that their feet were being washed, but it's their feet were being washed by Jesus. That's the emphasis. Foot washing was normal, a a normal courtesy, typically done by a servant. What's unusual here is that Jesus, the master, the teacher, is the one who's washing their feet. Now, there are many themes that are present here, not just one of service, though that's the main one. It's the foot washing speaks of Jesus' death. It represented spiritual cleansing. What he says to Peter that we read, you know, uh, if you were cleansed, uh, so forth. Uh, He tells Peter he will understand after Jesus' death about this cleansing. The washing is a criteria for fellowship with Christ. Cleansing speaks of cleansing from sin. And so it's not just the foot washing that was important. It's also what it represented. The impurities speak of Judas in verses 10 through 11. But primarily the the lesson here is about mutual service. He's modeling a behavior, Jesus is modeling a behavior that's very contrary to our natures, but we, if we've trusted in him and we follow him, we are to emulate that. And so if service on this order was possible for him, then it can't be beneath us. It, It can't be beneath us. I told you this is a, a three or four part series on encouragement. And back with the first lesson, which once again I doubt if you'll remember, I don't remember what I preach on the day after I preach on it, sometimes even the afternoon. More than once, Tammy, my assistant, will email me and say, What was your sermon on yesterday? so she could put it on the CD recording. I have to go back and look. I have to get the notes out and look. I've got. 
spiritual leakage is a major problem. It just kind of flows out, you know, before it hits my heart. And so I'm have to constantly run it through. Well, back at the first lesson, <clears throat> we looked at Philippians, how all believers, we are to encourage one another. We are not to look out for our own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. And I gave you a definition of encouragement that I think is original with Larry Crabb. And it basically says encouragement is the kind of expression that helps someone want to be a better Christian, even when life is tough. Maybe I should add, especially when life is tough. It's the kind of expression that helps someone want to be a, a better servant of Christ, even when life is tough. And we are all, as followers of Christ, if you name the name of Christ, we have a responsibility to encourage one another. And all the more as we see the day drawing near, it tells us in Hebrews. Then for the second lesson, I told you that one of the prerequisites for encouraging others is, is uh, being humble. We looked at Philippians 2. It says, in humility, consider others better than yourself. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. So isn't that what Jesus is modeling here? He is demonstrating through his actions this very attitude that he wants us to have, to serve one another and to demonstrate humility. And humility is understanding who you are and the source of your strength. It's not being self-degrading or putting yourself down, but it's having a a realistic, a truthful picture of who you are. Many people point to John the Baptist as one of the most humble men in Scripture. Now, here was John the Baptist out preaching and baptizing. And because he was baptizing Jewish people, the Jewish leaders were puzzled over this guy. Baptism has, it had existed in the Old Testament. But that was one of the ways a Gentile could be accepted into the Jewish community was by baptism. Hence, when John the Baptist was, was baptizing Jews, they were puzzled, like, why are you doing it? Who are you? Are you the prophet? No. Are you Elijah? No. Are you the Messiah? No. Who are you? I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready, make straight the paths of the Lord. John was humble. He was humble because he knew who he was and the source of his strength. So let's not confuse humility with shyness or being an introvert. Or being down on ourselves, you know, I'm nothing, I'm nothing, uh, don't compliment me, or I'll just, you know, it just is not. That's, that can be more pride. That's self-centeredness. Humility is knowing who you are and the source of your strength. I have a friend that served with the Navigators, the Christian ministry, and he was on staff. And he, was, <clears throat> he spoke one time at a college campus, and he met a student afterwards. And while they were talking, here's this almost complete stranger to him. The student leveled some real criticism at some of the leaders of the ministry. He said, well, why, why are you talking like that? He said, well, they're just so prideful. I mean, look at that guy up front, the MC of the meeting or one of the leaders. He said he likes, you know, he feeds off being in front of other people. And my friend, who's, who's very perceptive and very loving, said, you know, he's perplexed by why this guy was being so critical. He said, what do you like to do? He said, Me? Yeah, he said, yeah, you, what do you like to do? He said, well, I like to go, I like, like late at night, I like to go like to a Waffle House, and I'll, I'll sit there, and I like to read and think. And he said, you go by yourself? He said, yeah, I go by myself. And the student put that forth kind of like it was a humble thing. And my friend said to him, you know, 
I think you may be the most prideful person in this room. He said, why do you say that? He was stunned. He said, because if pride is preoccupation with self, the person you like to be with the most is yourself. I thought, you know, he wasn't trying to read the guy's heart, but he was trying to say pride can show itself in many forms, and humility isn't always the, the quiet person in the corner, you know, not interacting with anyone else. So we're to be humble toward one another. How does Jesus model this? It's a principle of service. Now, many Christians, the reason I asked a moment ago, many Christians have understood that Jesus intended this, this act of washing feet to be perpetuated in the church throughout the ages. And so you will find foot washing as an, as an ordinance in the church. John is sacrament and overstatement. It's ordinance, right? Ordinance in the church. In by Roman and Greek churches, some Protestant groups like Brethren churches, Mennonite churches, uh, and even some Baptist churches uh, still observe foot washing. But most have seen that this wasn't, he wasn't instituting something that we are to uh, duplicate in church services continually. But he was modeling a behavior, and that was the greatest among you will be the servant of all. Now, I think it's all the more amazing, and I want you to think with me for a minute, that if Jesus knew what was getting ready to happen to him, and he was anticipating the physical and spiritual torture he was getting ready to endure, I don't know about you, but when I am in pain, emotional pain, the last thing I'm thinking about is how to serve another person. I kind of hunker down, and I'm like, I've just got to endure this. Let me give you an example. Yeah, because I think it's natural when we're in pain to turn inward, and that's probably when we're not in a very good frame of mind to serve others. It's been a long time, but right after my father died, within the days after he died, I remember I was an assistant pastor here, and I got a phone call from a guy who was my friend and is still my friend. I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm going to tell you. Uh, And I hope a, a lifelong friend. And I got a phone call from him. He quickly acknowledged my loss and then immediately jumped into some trivial church argument. And Barbara was in the kitchen, and I was standing right outside the kitchen on the telephone, and I was short-tempered, and I was bewildered, and I was short with him, and I I just thought, this is not the time to get into this. And I was in no mood to deal with it. Now... Here's Jesus on the verge (laughs) of something that's not a a worry that might happen. It's going to happen. The crucifixion, the spiritual torture. And yet, what's he do? He serves these people. Now, to me, that's, that's the most notable thing out of this at all. What Jesus had on his plate, to use our, our terminology today. So I want to tell you and urge you, if you wait until your own personal life is pain-free and all your problems are solved and you are, you know, feel, okay, I can finally give out because my tank is full, it'll never happen. Don't wait until all your hurts and concerns are over before you serve others. Also, note here, Jesus' disciples were not perfect. He didn't wait until God gave him perfect people to serve. <laughs> He didn't say, okay, who in here is worthy of being served? He knew Peter was getting ready to betray him. 
He knew Judas, I mean deny him, Judas would betray him. They were doubting. They had been argumentative. Even at the end, they're still jockeying for position that who's going to sit at Jesus' right and left when he set up his kingdom. Bunch of misfits, morons. I mean, I could have sat right there with them. And he washes their feet. I'm not talking about anybody in particular here in the church, in case you're wondering. It's easy to love those who are lovely, to serve those who are worthy of being served, to respect the respectable. Encouragers are willing to take a risk. If you're going to encourage other people, sometimes you will risk being misunderstood, and you'll know it going into it. How will this be perceived? Will they think I'm trying to gain an, an edge here? Will they think this has some angle behind it, some, some other motivation? You know, that later the other shoe will drop. This was a risky move. I mean, there's a fine line between being humble and being somebody's doormat. Jesus has said, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. God wants you and me to be ignorant in terms of wickedness, but shrewd and wise when it comes to understanding life and understanding people. And... Jesus risked what could be easily misunderstood uh, at, at such a time. There was a risk involved. And I believe sometimes we choose not to encourage others because we don't want to take the risk. How will my action be interpreted? What will they think is behind it? Are we willing to involve such a risk to encourage another person? I also add encouragers are willing to love sacrificially. And I, that's why I read the last four verses there, uh, the last four verses I read where Jesus said, A new command I give to you, verse 34, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Encouragement and loving others sacrificially go hand in hand. You remember that when Jesus was confronted at the synagogue by a leading interpreter of the Jewish law, the man said, Sir, what is the one great commandment? Sum it up for us. What's the one that rules over our lives? And Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That's the greatest and foremost. And then he went ahead and answered, the guy didn't ask what was the second greatest. He added, the second is, you shall love your neighbor as, as yourself. So that sums up. We know that sums up the two tables of the law. The first four commandments that deal with our relationship with God. The last six commandments that deal with our relationships with one another. Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Those summarize the commandments not just in New Testament times, but then and now and for eternity. And so in verse 34 of John, when he says, A new command I give to you, we know that the commands to love one another were already, he'd already stated that. So why is he calling this a new command? Well, because love would take on a new meaning and new power in light of his death and resurrection. With the coming of the Holy Spirit, love would have a new power behind it. One of the fruit of the Spirit. Remember, love from Galatians 5. So the section begins and ends with Jesus' love. Jesus' love for his own, for the disciples' love for one another. And so his example is one of self-sacrificial love. And this type of unconditional love is not learned in three neat little steps. 
We live in a day of techniques. I don't know about you, I get tired of techniques. I get tired of, um, I just think it can be shallow. Here, here are the three things you need to do to gain this. Here are the two steps for this. Here are your eight steps to personal power. Here are your seven steps to getting out of debt. Here are your four steps to make money. Here are your 12 steps to flatten your abs <laughs> or improve your golf swing with Greg Norman's secret. The emphasis in all this and much today is technique, is technique, how to use a computer, how to use a smartphone, how to do all that. Jesus rarely taught technique. He rarely dealt with technique. We don't even find things like that in his teaching. He dealt with the heart because if the heart is right, the other things will follow. That's the basic attitude. If you get your attitude right, if your heart is right, then the techniques the techniques will come, or then they'll make more sense. So I want to leave you with these tips. <laughs> no, these aren't tips and techniques. These are diagnostic questions, okay? Am I, here's, I'm going to read about ten of them. Am I focusing on action to show love to others daily? Who have I intentionally encouraged over the past week or two weeks? Who should I seek to encourage this week? Have I used encouraging words this week in a non-self-centered way, or was I trying to manipulate others with positive remarks rather than trying to speak encouraging words of truth to their fears? For whom am I praying regularly? Am I aware of needs they have for which I can pray? Have I responded in a humble fashion to someone seeking to encourage me? Did I pay close attention to their words and take them seriously? Am I cultivating humility, consciously viewing others as more important than myself? If so, what difference is that making in my actions? What needs has God revealed to me lately, and what do I plan to do for those in need? And the last diagnostic question is, what attitudes and defense mechanisms have I built into my personality which hinder other people from encouraging me? You ever ask yourself that? Are you quick-witted and make light of what people say and always have a comeback and a joke? What, let me read it again. What attitudes and defense mechanisms have I built into my personality which hinder me from encouraging other people and from receiving encouragement? What are my fears and have I submitted those to God? Jesus was going to the cross. That would happen within a matter of hours after what we just read, after his action of washing the disciples' feet. Why did he go to the cross? Because we needed a substitute because of our problem of sin and death. God said he had to punish sin. There, without the shedding of blood, there would be no remission of sin. And so he provided lambs in the Old Testament that were illustrations, that were object lessons of a substitute that would bear the guilt and sin of the people that sins were confessed onto that lamb by the high priest. They pointed toward a redeemer who was Jesus who would come, the Lamb of God, so within hours of this, when he was on the cross, God put my sin on him. He punished him in my place. 
He died a full death. He died spiritually on the cross. He died physically after a matter of hours on the cross. Then he rose three days later. Over a period of 40 days, he appeared to hundreds of his followers, one time to more than 500 people at one time. His last command was to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And he said, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So that's the good news. We're not in a position to encourage other people, really encourage other people, unless we know Jesus. Do you know him today? Have you received that free gift that you can't earn or work for or uh, appease God with some of your actions? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the fact that Jesus was not just the Messiah, but he was a suffering servant. And he served with his death, he served with his life, and he serves now by interceding for us at your right hand, even this very instant. And we pray that you would help us to live with the sense of the brevity of life, that we would live with the awareness of how fleeting life is. We can look around this room. There were people seated here even six months ago. They're no longer with us. They've left this life or another. We pray you to give us that sense of urgency about encouragement that we find in Hebrews where we're to do it day after day. Uh, we know how easily we get discouraged in following you. We, we pray you'd help us to see that in ourselves so that it might motivate us to encourage others. And we ask that you'd bring encouragement into our lives at the right time and the right place by the right people because we need it as well. In Jesus' name, amen.